All right, who's interested in getting into the Word this morning? Really? So nobody else is. Okay. Hey, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn in them to, Reve- I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, if you will. We were in Revelation for a long time. Genesis chapter 2. If you've hit Revelation, back up. You've gone way too far. And this morning, we are going to be looking at one of the great mysteries within our world. And that mystery is understanding life. Two of the greatest questions that individuals are asking themselves today are, number one, what is the meaning of life? And number two, what is the purpose of life? Now, I believe that it is necessary to define what life is before we can answer those questions. And I think that there is a direct correlation between the inability to answer the, what is life, that question, and therefore we don't understand what is the meaning of life. How can you know what its meaning is if you don't know what it is? How can you understand its purpose if you don't understand what it is? And I think there's a direct correlation between the two. The title of my message this morning is The Origin of Life. And what we are going to discover as we venture into this subject together is that some of the smartest people in our world cannot define for us what life is. Today in our scientific community, the origin of life is still a great mystery. They believe that species were developed by a process of natural selection through evolution, but have no answer to the question of how life began. For example, the famous atheistic scientist Richard Dawkins believes that life was seeded on this planet from somewhere else. We're descendants of E.T. That's what he's saying, that life simply originated someplace else and was seeded upon this planet. That's an atheistic scientist. If we were to move to the study of philosophy, Dr. Michael Ruse, famous philosopher, his answer to the origin of life was that cells mutated on the back of crystals and life began. These are smart people. Well, to a certain degree. They don't know. They can't explain it. I read an article in Forbes some time ago, Forbes magazine, and the headline caught my attention. It says, as a biologist, I don't know how to define life. Well, as one who has dedicated their life in studying life, that was interesting and curious to me. Although biology is the study of life, the biologist stated, even biologists don't agree on what life actually is. While scientists have proposed hundreds of ways to define it, none have been widely accepted. And for the general public, a dictionary won't help because definitions will uh, use terms like organisms, animals, and plants 
and uh, synonyms for the examples of life, which sends you around in circles. In textbooks, instead of defining the words, textbooks will describe life with a list of half of a dozen features based on what it has or what it does. Now, I thought it was interesting that this biologist then said, well, let's look to NASA. Because NASA was asked if we were to search the galaxy and come across something that would appear to be alien life, how would we know that it is life? NASA, again, some pretty smart people. NASA's definition for life, life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. That's as clear as mud. But then the question is asked, would a God who exists beyond time, a spaceship-sized crystal, or a robotic AI be considered alive? As one philosopher wrote, he says, what is life? It is not simply a question of biology, but for philosophy also. And the answer is complicated by the fact that researchers from different fields have differing opinions on what they believe ought to be included in the definition. Some have gone as far, according to John Lennox, Dr. John Lennox from Oxford, the project of defining life is either impossible or pointless. If this is their endeavor to define life, is it any shock or surprise to us that therefore we would not know the meaning of life, the purpose of life? And therefore, if we don't understand the life that we possess, how do we know that we are truly living? Now, I'm not talking about simply being a sentient being. I'm talking about truly living our lives. What does it mean? to be alive. Are we living or are we merely existing? Now these are the questions that keep me up. These are the things that I ponder. Yes, I know I should get a hobby. No, I'm kidding. But these are the questions that I have. What is life? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Can it be answered through biology alone? Or is philosophy necessary also? And then I came across this tweet just the other day. From the Chicago Tribune just after Christmas. Reporting that San Francisco has now completed constructing nets on either side of the Golden Gate Bridge to prevent suicides. As I went into it a little deeper, I found that 30 people a year jump from the Golden Gate Bridge and die. But what I was surprised to discover is that part of the Golden Gate Patrol is to stop people from jumping. And though 30 people die a year, suicide is attempted by hundreds over the course of a year, and they are stopped. What brings a person to such a place? Well, that's a very big question. 
It probably has more of a complicated answer than we would like to acknowledge. They are now reporting that 2023 was the highest suicide rate in the United States of America. 50,000 people committed suicide in the United States of America. The majority of those were between the ages of 35 and 50. 35 and 50. You can tell that there is a uh, mindset of despair, of hopelessness. We don't know why we're here. We don't know what our purpose is. We've exhausted all of the aspects of this world and haven't found satisfaction in them. We are looking at things maybe objectively for the very first time and conclude that things are really messed up, aren't they? And for a lot of people, this is too much. This is too much. This morning, I want to reintroduce you to the meaning of life, the origin of life, the purpose of life. For there is only one source in which life can be found, and that is in God himself. I think of this verse in John chapter 10, verse 10. I want you to keep this in mind as we proceed in our study this morning. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. But he doesn't end there. And that they may have it more abundantly. What did Jesus mean by that? What is this abundant life that he is talking about? I believe in understanding that abundant life will help us to understand the meaning and the purpose of our life here on this earth. Why did Paul write what he wrote? Again, I'd like you to keep this in the back of your mind as we continue this morning. In Romans 8, 5, For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now I want you to notice in the grammar, in the Greek grammar, it's incredibly clear. In English it's less clear, but let me show you the association, or better yet, may I say the correlation, between the terms, one who lives accordingly. If one lives... According to the mindset of the flesh, they will reap those things. If they live according to the mindset of the Spirit, then they will reap the things of the Spirit. There is a direct correlation between our understanding of life and the way we live. And how we live and how we spend this life that God has given us. And in understanding that there's a direct correlation, now you may think that we are just exploring semantics up until this point. But just because I am alive, does that mean that I'm actually living? Have I tapped into this abundant life that God has for me? And what does that mean? Or am I merely existing? We know that existence continues after the grave, don't we? 
whenever I talk to someone about the concept of eternal life, it is clear to me that they initially believe that eternal life begins the moment you die, and then you go to heaven and have eternal life. But do you know that's not what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that eternal life begins the moment that you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ and become a new creation in Him. That's when eternal life begins. And that there, in this new life, this eternal life, there is an ability to live your life that one apart from God does not have access to. And I believe that this ability is the abundant life that God has specified. And we'll look at that more in, in depth in just a moment. But one who dies apart from Christ, do they cease to exist at that moment? No, they too occupy an eternal realm, don't they? They exist for all eternity. It isn't life it is existence, and it's an existence apart from God in a place created for the devil and his angels, a place that we know as hell. Because their sin that they had not dealt with in and through the cross of Christ now becomes their burden to bear. And after standing before the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, Clearly, it is indicated after they are weighed and measured according to the books that are open, where every deed, thought, and action and word is judged according to these books, and therefore them also not being found in the book of life. They are then cast from God for all eternity. But do they cease to exist? And this is why I say that for a Christian, this world is as difficult as it's going to get. It's only going to get better. For one who is outside of Christ, who does not believe in Christ, this world is the best it's ever going to be for them. What a shame. What a shame. What a shame that they don't know what God may have for them. So as we begin to explore this concept of life, let us begin to where it all began. In Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, if you look there with me, and we'll read up through verse 7. As he now summarizes everything from chapter 1, he says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the, the ground, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. There we go. Now, I don't know about you, but I have walked with the Lord long enough. In fact, uh, I, 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 next, this year, I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years. And one thing I've concluded is that I don't always know how God does what He does. 
In fact, I'm going to be honest with you, I rarely know how God does what he does. And as we read this, we see that God simply breathed into the nostrils of his created being, Adam laying there in an inanimate state, out of the clay of the earth, the dust of the earth, as the same 23 elements are found in dirt are found in us. There you Think about that for a little bit and help your self-esteem. You're nothing but mud, okay? That's what you are. But it doesn't stop there, does it? The lowest forms of his creation are accompanied with the highest form of his creation, life itself, where he breathes life into us. And notice what it says here, that we became a living being. We became a living being. To sum up the understanding of the origin of life, we must understand one word, three letters. It is God. God is the one who departed life to us. It is that that we will take a closer look at this morning. Understand that apart from what God had done here, we would have remained in that inanimate state. One of the baffling aspects of evolution when you discuss the origin of life is leading them to a place where they have to admit that something had to happen to bring about life. For nothing non-living can bring forth something that is living. I can go out and find some mud right now. I can form it into the shape of a human being. But even I cannot impart life to it, and I'm living. Now, if I were to take a rock and put that rock next to that formed pile of mud, what are the chances that that rock then would be able to impart life to that form of mud? It's an impossibility. This is why the concepts of planet seeding are considered, that life had to start somewhere else. How did it start there? We don't know. But it started there and then it was seeded here. That certain, certain you know, cells, now we don't explain where those cells have arrived, are found on the back of crystals. We don't know what kind of crystals. And somehow life was imparted to it. It's impossible. A non-living thing cannot bring about a living thing. But God can. To understand this is to understand the origins of life. The Bible is replete with places that say very clearly, God is life. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now this is fascinating because we're going to get into the Gospel of John in just a moment. Because I believe that John, in the brilliance of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John in his gospel addressed some of the primary questions of his society. He addressed some of the primary questions of his society. And one of those questions was, of course, the origin and the meaning of life. This is not a new question. 
The problem with the question, or the, the reason the question lingers as long as it does, is because if we don't understand where life originated from, how therefore can we ever know what life actually means? Or what is the purpose of life? The word breathed here in the Hebrew is ruach. It is the same word that is used for spirit or breath, okay, or wind. It is paralleled with the word in Greek that we know as pneuma. Again, meaning the exact same thing. Breath, wind, spirit, etc. It is at this moment that Adam became a living being. He was given a spirit. He was given a soul. Therefore, conforming him into the image in which God stated initially that he would create man in. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let, uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over all creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And of course, we can address many of the social concerns with that last phrase alone. It is not surprising to me that we are questioning gender. It is not surprising to me that we have separated gender from biology. If we don't understand biology, which of course is the study of life, then how are we going to understand ourselves? The question that I raise to my, uh, you know, trans friends is this. Is the situation you find yourself in, is it a physiological issue or a psychological issue? Is it what you think or is it what it physically is? Now, of course, they cannot prove that it is something physical. So then they have to argue in the realm of psychology. They have to justify this by their own thinking. They don't have biology to stand upon. But again, if we don't understand life and who gave it and the purpose and design for it, then it is, isn't surprising to me that he says, of course, God says, I've created them male and female. However, if we remove God, and if we do not look at Him as the origin of life, and we don't know how life began, and we come up with other theories of possibility, but not probability, then it's easy for me to see someone moving away and being able to rationally, in their own mind, justify separating gender from biology. It's no mystery. The problem is, is that do we have the responsibility of affirming that decision and idea, or do we have the responsibility as Christians in confronting it gently, truthfully, and reminding them that they were created in the image of God, male and female? I believe the latter. I do not believe that we are beholden to affirm every decision a person makes especially one that is contrary to Scripture. 
the highest form was joined with the lowest form. And when God formed man, the Hebrew word used there is yaser, or yaser, Y-A-S-A-R. And it means to form like an artist would form something from clay and into a beautiful image, a pot or a sculpture, whatever it may be. God formed us in this way. And at the point then he breathed in and he became a living being with a living soul. This made man a spiritual being with the capacity for serving and fellowshipping with God. Uh-oh, now we get into it. This gave us the capacity of serving and fellowshipping with God. The study of teleology will tell us that if we understand the design of something, we can derive the purpose of that item, that thing. If we were designed for the purpose of fellowshipping with God, if we were designed for the purpose of serving God, well, the blank becomes filled. What is the purpose of life? To fellowship with God. With this special creation in mind, the reader can then see the significance of the fall. And that's what we have to understand, the impact of the fall. Since the fall, regeneration by inbreathing of the Holy Spirit is essential in order for people to enjoy fellowship with God. And here is the great news. The great news is that the life that we lost at the fall can be regained once again. That's the hope of Jesus Christ. As one wrote, he said, But life can only come from life. And the living God is the only self-existent being. So it must ultimately come from Him. Especially to to stress the unique relationship of human life to divine life. This scripture verse tells us that God Himself directly imparted life and breathed into man. But then something happened. As God told them from the very beginning that they could eat of every tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because once they did so, they would die. The life that God gave us was lost at the moment of the fall. And everything that took taken place since. Paul sums up in this way in Romans 5.17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. That each individual born after Adam was born in death. The purpose of birth was to eventually die. However, though, that reign of death can be severed. And we can be subjected to a new king. And we can be subjected once again to the life giver. And though our life physically may end, our spiritual life will continue for all eternity in heaven. So the fall was rectified by none other than God himself. So everything that we see in this world, in the society apart from God, is, being, is reigned or being reigned by death. That's why we have such a temporal nature in everything around us. 
That's why we have lost the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the reason for our existence. We don't have the concept of knowing what it was meant to be made in His image. We've lost all of that, but the good news is this, that it can be rediscovered and received once again. When we come to the Gospel of John, John brilliantly addresses again the philosophical questions that were brewing at that time. You can't read John's Gospel without understanding that fact and completely appreciate it. John, of course, wrote these things so that we would believe. Believe in what? That Jesus was exactly who he said he was and that in and through him eternal life could be found. And yes, John lists various miracles within the gospel to indicate that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. But what you miss without understanding the philosophical backdrop that was behind the gospel of John that explains the reason that he used the word logos for Jesus, calling him the word, saying that he dwelt among us, and even some of the descriptions of what Jesus did to impart life, even calling Jesus by two uh, elements that were necessary for sustaining of life, water and bread. Now, why did John do all of this? Well, if you look back in that culture, of course, Rome was prominent. They were the governing empire of the world at that time. But if we stop there, we'll stop short of fully understanding the thinking of the individuals, especially in academia, intellectualism, and philosophy. We'll, we'll miss the fact that what they were basing their premises on, their theories on, their ideas on, wasn't found in and through the Roman Empire, but the empire that preceded the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire. And of course, the Greek philosophers were always trying to understand life. In fact, one, I believe, actually stated that that was their primary uh, primary goal, to understand life and the meaning of it and the purpose of it, etc. And even though Rome was in charge, the thinking at that time was certainly more Grecian. And as a result, this concept and understanding of life was still prominent in their thinking. It was a theme that, if you look at it this way, Say we have the subject of life, and what the various philosophers did is that they all looked at that subject from different perspectives and gave their thoughts upon it over hundreds of years. We're not talking about just simply in a, a small period of time. The way philosophy worked in that culture was based upon precedent. So a philosopher would say something, then his students would repeat it and develop it, and then the students after that would repeat it and develop it and expound upon it, and it would evolve, if I may use that word. The philosophical understanding and ideas would evolve. This is exactly the backdrop of Acts 17, when Paul addresses the, the, uh, those there and the Aragopagus in Athens, and where's Athens, by the way? Very interesting. This is exactly what Paul was addressing there. 
So John, and, and this is what fascinates me, John, throughout the entire gospel, is basically saying, if I may sum it up for you, you want to know about life? You want to know the meaning of life? You want to know the purpose of life? There's one five-letter word, J-E-S-U-S. This is the component that all of you are missing. This is, the, this is the one in whom you are missing. And throughout the Gospel of John, and we're going to do a flyover of John really quickly. We're going to do the whole Gospel in the next 10 minutes. No, I'm kidding. But notice with me, after saying what I have said to preface it, notice these verses, and maybe you'll see them in a little bit different light. In John 1.4, he begins from the very beginning. Should be on the screen behind me. In him was what? And the life was what? Meaning that if you're going to understand life, you need to understand Jesus because he is the light. He is the illumination. He is the one pointing you to the realization of what true life is. That's what he says. I mean, he's right out, right out of the gate. We're only four verses into it. He, we are right out of the gate. Notice with me in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Now, of course, quoting Jesus, but John is the one that compiled these sayings in the manner in which he did, purposely, I believe. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that in whoever believes in him should not perish, but has everlasting what? Life. A contrast. Now, perishing, believe it or not, of course, begins the moment you're born right? You start in a hospital and most likely you end up in a hospital, right? We're perishing. We're dying. But Jesus can interrupt this process and it was God the Father out of his love for us that allowed for this process to occur. In John 14, 4, I'm sorry, 4, 14, excuse me. But whoever drinks of this water, speaking to the woman at the well that I shall give him will never thirst. You'll be satisfied. But the water that I shall give to him will become in him a living fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And of course, the context there is that this woman was drawing from sources of the world and was never satisfied. This is the overall picture. Philosophically, this is what John was communicating through the illustration of that event. You can draw from the world over and over and over again, but you'll never be satisfied. But in Him you will be satisfied. In John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to him whom He wills. In John 6, 47 and 48, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life, for I am the bread of life. And there's the second necessary component. Of course, we can trace this back to its Old Testament roots, but in the culture, in the Gentile world, if you go to Matthew chapter 5, 
And, or chapter 6, I believe. And he says, do not be worried about these things, for these things the Gentiles worry after. But your heavenly Father knows what you are in need of. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and its righteousness, and everything else shall be added unto you. And what he is saying here is that the necessities of life will be provided in and through Jesus Christ. But what he's also saying philosophically is that the life that God gives us will be, of course, given and is directly sourced by God himself. That's what he's saying here. Okay? In John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live over and over and over again. John is saying to the Gentile world, if you want to know about the origins of life, if you really want to know what it means, what life means, and what the purpose of life is that can only be found in and through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. This was astonishing. I would have loved to have seen this book read by those who have contemplated these things. And how did they initially react when John was saying this about Jesus? What, this carpenter, this 33-year-old carpenter from Nazareth, who died and then apparently rose again. You mean to tell me that he's the answer to all of our questions concerning the origins of life? John looking at them, yep. Uh-huh. You mean to tell me that I can find the meaning of life and the purpose of life in and through Jesus Christ? Yep. Sure can. That's simple. As we are trying to make it this convoluted, complex understanding. Jesus is basically saying, if you want life, here it is. It's me. That's what he's saying here. That simply. And that's what John is bringing forward. But how is that life imparted to us today? Now remember, we've all fallen, right? We're all in sin. He told Nicodemus something very interesting about this new life. You must be born again. Nicodemus came back with the logical question. How can a person be born again? How can we re-enter our mother's womb? I don't really want to think about that. But that was his logical question. It definitely shows you that he was looking at everything from an earthly perspective. Jesus, of course, was addressing a heavenly one. And he says, it's in and through me. And after I ascend back into heaven, I'm going to send pneuma to you, the breath to you, the Holy Spirit. And let's take another look at John. This time I want you to follow along in your Bibles with me. And let us begin in John 14, 15 through 17. I believe that it is not by coincidence or accident that John wrote heavily concerning the understanding of the Holy Spirit. Because once, remember his overall premise for, the, for his book was his letter, the Gospel of John, was that you may believe. 
So he's saying that life is found in Jesus. How that life is imparted is imparted through the Holy Spirit. So it would only make sense, logically, to inform people of who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is upon the earth. We here at Calvary are Trinitarians. We believe that God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the greatest asset that the Lord could have sent us in conjunction with His Word. And we're going to notice something very interesting about His Word in just a moment. But notice with me the introduction to the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave us, starting with His disciples. Again, remember the word pneuma for spirit or breath. And how was life conveyed into Adam initially? God, what? Breathed on him. Guess what? We're going to see that again. Did you ever notice that? Let me show you. In John 14, 15 through 17, if you love me and keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another, notice the word used to describe the Spirit's role in our life, a helper. I don't know about you, but I need help each and every day to walk my Christian walk. Every day. Can't do it on my own. Tried. Failed, tried again, failed again. This is why God says, do not walk in the flesh, but walk in the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That He may abide with you or continue with you for how long? Forever. Notice that. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The two relationships with man described there in that last verse. He was initially with you, convicting you, drawing you to Jesus Christ. That was his role. But once you received Christ and were washed by the blood of Christ, the Spirit then could dwell within you. He takes resident within you. Now, interesting, Jesus offers a third relationship in the book of Acts 1.8. When he says, now I want you to go and pray and wait upon the Holy Spirit until he comes upon you, epi in the Greek, where he comes overflowing, giving us the ability to be witnesses for him into all the world, also known as the filling of the Spirit. But it is the Spirit of God that is the source of our life. In John 14, 25 through 31, fast forward me a little bit more. Jesus says to them, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So therefore, let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be afraid. The peace that we experience initially is a peace with God that has been, of course, created through the work of Jesus Christ's atonement, death and resurrection, death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. That atonement allows us peace with God. The reason so many don't have peace in their heart today is because they haven't made peace with God. But once you make peace with God, then the peace of God governs your heart. And that peace of God that He gives us 
to help us weather the storms of life is given and received through the Spirit Himself. You have heard me say in verse 28, To you I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I said I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you, uh, talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and, has, and he has nothing in me. Meaning he has no bearing, he has nothing on me. That is Satan himself. But the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father gave me a commandment, and, and so I do, arise and go from here. Then in John 16, verse 5, notice again, and this is all leading up to John 20. He wanted his disciples to know and understand who the Holy Spirit is, that the Holy Spirit is the one that imparts this life that he is going to give. In John 16, 5 through 15, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, I bet. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. But you that got their ears perked. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and see you no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Meaning Satan is finished. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whenever he he whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Now this was the beginning. This was the introduction of the role of the Holy Spirit. But the early church got it. They knew and they understood that the Spirit of God was the life source that Christ sent us to continue what he had started, okay? And as the Spirit of God moves, remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you don't know where the Spirit comes or goes, but you see the effects of the Spirit, just like you see the effects of the wind. The Spirit of God is moving. Now notice with me, after this introduction to the Holy Spirit, okay, he finally, with his disciples, notice what he does in John 20, 21 and 22. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he what? breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. John told us from the very beginning that all things that were created have been created in and through Jesus Christ. As God breathed into Adam, 
Here, Jesus breathes into the disciples the Holy Spirit. Again, demonstrating that through Christ and in Christ, Christ is the source of life. And that source is transmitted to us through the Holy Spirit. That was an early Christian understanding. It is the Holy Spirit that allows us not to walk in the lusts of the flesh, but to overcome them and to walk in the Spirit. Notice with me as Paul explains this to the Galatians, Gentiles, individuals that had not grown up in Judaism. He says in chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, you might want to read through it unless you have very good eyes to see it on the board behind, or the screen behind me. Then I said, then I, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What is he saying there? He's saying that the new life that Jesus Christ has given you is meant to be lived out through your life. You are not to continue in the old ways, the old life that was governed by the appetites of your flesh, the wants and the desires that were often fulfilled outside of God's prescription for doing so. That you were to walk in a new morality that was governed by the Spirit of God. Now, when we walk in the Spirit, and we avoid the lusts of the flesh, okay? Now, trust me, we are all works in progress, right? We are not going to be perfect until we enter into heaven. That's why we should show grace to one another. We all fall and fail uh, time and time again, right? But it is the Spirit of God that picks us up again and again and again and puts us back on our feet, to allow us to continue to walk. And then over the course of time, we'll notice that walking in the Spirit or walking in the new life becomes easier. Not that we won't be tempted, or not that we won't fall at times or have trials and tribulations, but we'll be able to weather them in a more easy fashion. Notice what he says here. That the new life is meant to be lived out. And living out the new life and in the avoidance of the pitfalls of sin, your life will become a lot less complicated. I love that status on Facebook and other social medias concerning relationship. It's complicated. Nothing complicates our life more than sin. I, I have this, uh, I, I just love watching Cops, the show Cops. I do. You know, they pull the person over and you can tell that they're intoxicated within five or six minutes. You know, oh, he's going to have a test. She's going to walk the line. He's going to walk the line. He's going to breathe. And then, you know, when I watched it with my friends years ago, we used to bet on the number that they would blow, you know. Oh, she's a good 2.8, you know. She, my one friend, well, I think it's a 2.0. Really? That's called death, you know. He wasn't the brightest bulb in the box. But, I have no idea why I brought that up right now. Oh, do you notice how complicated their lives become afterwards? 
how complicated everything becomes. How many people do we know, maybe even ourselves, that complicated our lives because of sin to the point where we can't enjoy life? We've made mistakes that, oh boy, they are really coming back to haunt us. We've made decisions. We've done things. I was reading an article today on Fox about a woman who is now pro-life because she had four abortions over the course of her life, and she's only in her early 30s. But she wanted to know how difficult the abortion process is. Regardless if it's surgery or the pills, she says it's horrific, and we're not being told this. And after experiencing it four times, she said, no, I had to stop and I had to say, I am not for this anymore. She worked for Planned Parenthood. And she says, this is wrong on every, every level. And then she said, I cannot believe how much abortion complicated my life. Sin complicates our life. Notice with me the various sins that he lists here. But first, I'm sorry, the the fruit of the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, which is drug use. In this term, pharmakia is the word in Greek. Hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions, dissensions and heresies, and the list goes on, envies and murders and drunkenness. You know, I have never seen a drunk person do something rational, have you? Talk about complicating your life. Complicating your life. Revelries and the like of which I tell you beforehand, and as I also tell you in times past, that those who practice or are continuously marked by these qualities or characteristics, such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not, because they haven't experienced the new life. But, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering, kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness. Here's a great one, self-control. And against such of these there are no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us also walk in the Spirit. So life, understanding it from our perspective biblically, has been given to us and originated with God. This life is now meant to be lived out for the glory of God, for the fellowship with God, for the serving of God. Those are your purposes. That is our meaning of life, to fellowship with God. In fact, in John 17, John says something fascinating, that the definition of eternal life is knowing God. That's what he says. So let me go back to you with John 10.10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. This is Satan himself. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. 
Are you living or are you merely existing? You can't answer that question without coming to Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you have confidence in your salvation? Are you enjoying the abundant life that God has given you? Oh, and what does that abundant life look like? That God will give you all of your material wants? Is that what it means? No, it doesn't. But this is what he does say. That the eternal life is just that, eternal, and it's not temporal. It's satisfying and not empty. Instead of pursuing happiness, you will find joy. Instead of living in constant chaos, you will discover peace. If you feel that love has escaped you and you don't know what it is, you will realize the love of God in the unconditional fashion in which it's been shown to you, and you'll understand love once and for all. You will find security in an insecure world, and ultimately all of that will lead to the component that so many are lacking today, and that is hope. Hope. I think of those poor people who have come to a place in their life where they feel it necessary to take their life. To stand on the edge of that bridge, to look over, and to think that the best way out, my only solution, the only thing I can do is just end it all. It is to those that I say, stop. Now, you may not be there physically, but you may be there mentally, thinking there's nothing else for me. Oh, you're so wrong. May I encourage you this morning, if you are in that place today, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and receive the gift that he has given you, eternal life. And you'll no longer be merely existing. You'll know what it means to live for the very first time. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Father, I thank you that we don't have to wonder about the origin of life, the meaning of life, or the purpose of life. With those questions answered and the incredible abundant blessings that come with eternal life, Father, I thank you that we can have hope in a hopeless world. Just recently read this week, Lord, that the young generation in high school today is known as the hopeless generation. Wow, what a moniker. Father, I pray that before any of those young people who are in high school may ever consider taking their own life, I pray that you would intercede like only you can and let them know that they can turn to Jesus and find true meaning and purpose to life once and for all. Father, you are really working in our world. And people are getting saved all over the place, Lord, even in the turbulent time in which we live. You know why? Because you love them. And you don't wish that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Father, I want to be part of what you are doing. I want to share your good news. As someone shared it with me when I was 16 years old, and Father, I just pray that you would use our church this year to spread your gospel to anyone who will listen. And we ask this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.